I'm Janet Jacobson, and I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I want to welcome all of you to this, our inaugural um, salon, which will be focused on public feelings. Um, and I do want to say that, that we're actually following the um, uh, uh, standards set by our students here, which is to say that this year the um, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies students started having salons, and we thought that we could do no better than to follow suit. We have had the pleasure of uh, collaborating with CSGS at NYU a number of times, and in particular, this event grows out of one that featured Lauren Berlant at NYU last year. Um, so we're deeply grateful for that uh, collaboration. And then finally, the other members of our panel, and I'll introduce everybody in a minute, um, come from the public feelings, and I meant to check this out with you. Do, do you. Should we think of you as the public feelings group, the circle, the gang? Um, cluster. <laughs> the cluster, the cell? Um, at NYU, um, and we hope uh, uh, we'll have an ongoing life. So um, both Jose Munoz and Tavia Nyong'o have been part of an ongoing discussion about public feelings for a number of years. Um, and, of course, I owe a special debt here um, to Lauren Berlant, whose work is the basis for this evening's conversation. Um, I will give the official introduction of Lauren, and then I'll eventually uh, give official introductions for our other speakers, and then talk a little bit about um, uh, both my and BCRW's ongoing collaborations with Lauren um, and uh, uh, the debt that, that we owe her here. So, officially speaking. Lauren Berlant is the George M. Pullman Professor of English at the University of Chicago, where she has taught since 1984. Her work looks at intimate publics and the affective practices that bind strangers to each other via triangulated relations to something that seems stable, like national, racial, sexual, gendered, and class identity. Berlant is the author of several books, including uh, um, an out-of-order trilogy, which I find to be very queer, which includes, in <laughs> no particular order, The Queen of America Goes to Washington City, Essays on Sex and Citizenship, and The Anatomy of National Fantasy, Hawthorne Utopia, and Everyday Life, as well as her most recent book, but not the third book in the trilogy, The Female Complaint, The Unfinished Business of Sentimentality in American Culture. Her edited volumes include Intimacy, Compassion, the culture and politics of emotion, and with Lisa Dugan, our Monica, ourselves, Clinton, and affairs of state. Now, Lisa Dugan, as many of you know, was scheduled to be here this evening and unfortunately was unable to join us because she is ill, but um, we're always grateful to Lisa's intellectual input, and we hope to hear much more from her as this conversation develops and into the future. All right, um, but this conversation is actually based on forthcoming work from Lauren, which is a new book out due out in December of 2011, which is called, out of Duke University Press, which is called simply Cruel Optimism. Um, and each of the panelists read an essay of the same name, Cruel Optimism, that was published in the journal Differences several years ago, 2007 maybe, um, and will respond specifically to that. So as background, I want to do two things here. One is to speak about some of the sources of this particular conversation, and the other is to provide a little bit of framework on cruel optimism. And then, as Lauren will correct whatever I have to say about what cruel optimism is about. Um, all right, so this project actually began, began a long time ago in the year 2000 when I became director of the Center for Research on Women, and Lauren was at that time center of the, director of the Center for the Study of Gender Studies. Is that what it's called at Chicago? Uh, center for Gender Studies. Center for Gender Studies at the University of Chicago. And together we began a project um, that at the time was called Feminism Unfinished. The millennium had just turned and we wanted to ask where had feminism come, where might it go, um, what was happening, where did we find ourselves, and little did we know sort of the, the changes that were about to happen. Um, but out of several discussions which happened both here in New York and um, in Chicago, uh, a number of projects developed, including two that I will mention this evening. One, a public feelings project, which was located both at the University of Chicago and also in Austin, and which we have um, and may uh, uh, also cite here in New York coming out of this conversation, and in, in Chicago. Chicago in particular produced um, what they termed a field tank, which I think is a brilliant undertaking. Um, and the public feelings group um, was also was paralleled here at uh, Barnard by a group that was called Desiring Change. So you can begin to get a sense of where we were going with this feelings, desire. Um, and Desiring Change had its own multiple per permutations. Um, it became a website, which you can find at the BCRW site. Um, we are currently working on a project in conjunction with Queers for Economic Justice that will be part of our New Feminist Solutions series, and in particular, um, 
we're working on uh, publishing a set of essays of, um, from QEJ, of which Lisa Dugan is one of the editors. Um, and that project was funded just in small part by the Ford Foundation Difficult Dialogues Grant, which is also um, one of the sponsors for this evening. All right, feelings, desires. These are things that are not supposed to be, at least if one listens to normative discourse, public. They are to be private, but like so many things that are supposed to be private, sex, let's say, feelings and desires actually seem not only to be present in public, but to drive much of what happens in public life, at least in the United States, and um, we could um, talk about broader questions. And we wanted to think, when we were thinking about the project that is feminism, which is fundamentally a political project, how it is that feelings worked in relation to feminism, and in particular, as the collaboration for Desiring Change with QEJ might, sh might show, how we might move toward terms that are more recognizably public, like justice. What does it mean to connect feelings and desire to economics and justice? These are some of the questions that we were asking in the original project. So one of the questions that we want to ask this evening is what about feelings in public, perhaps especially when those feelings are a desire for change? And we hope that one of the things that this conversation can help us think about is feminism and other projects for justice that are and perhaps always will be unfinished, at least in the current moment. And I will say Lauren reminded me just before we started that um, she has a footnote in a piece called Affirmative Culture and Crit Critical Inquiry, which describes the whole Feminism Unfinished project. So if you're interested, you can um, read more about it, which we encourage. And if feelings are not supposed to be public, but nonetheless are, then is it possible that optimism can be cruel? Perhaps it's not hard to see how this can be, cruel optimism, when one attends, especially not when one attends to the crisis in living that is the subject of Lauren's book and that we see so frequently around us. When, for example, the effects of the financial crisis linger, not so much in the finance industry itself, they seem to have gotten over it rather well, but in those who remain unemployed and who continue to face economic difficulties and, in fact, crisis. Um, and, in fact, when they focus on a project in life that has become more and more precarious, which is, for those of you who have attended to the term precarity as it's developed out of a number of social movements, this is one of the things that Lauren takes up extensively in the book. When, for example, budget cuts at every level, federal, state, city, perhaps even university and college, are, those, are directed at those who are, mo who are most vulnerable. When health care legislation victoriously passes, and yet since that time both health and care have become harder and harder to obtain. Perhaps in these circumstances one can see how optimism might be cruel. And as Lauren said to me yesterday, um, particularly perhaps for women, it seems to become crueler and crueler. So what about the optimism? What about the conjunction of cruelty and optimism? So I'm going to read just the very first paragraph of the introduction to the book because it explains precisely the, the concept of cruel optimism um, as, again, background for our conversation. This is a quote. A relation of cruel optimism exists when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your flourishing. It might involve food or a kind of love. It might be a fantasy of the good life or a political project. Here I would interject like feminism. It might rest on something simpler, too, returning to Lauren's words, like a new habit that promises to induce in you an improved way of being. These kinds of optimistic relation are not inherently cruel. They become cruel only when the object that draws your attachment actively impedes the aim that brought you to it initially. And this is one of the questions for feminism or for feminism unfinished, which is that in many areas today, feminism actually seems to be at the tip of everyone's tongue. It seems to be almost finished. It seems to drive all kinds of activity at both the governmental, well, at the governmental level and the non-governmental level in ways that don't seem to coincide with the feminism that we found to be unfinished in 2000. One of the things that we're interested in, in other words, is how feminism itself can be a project that in setting out to, let us say, help women, actually impedes their flourishing. When feminism becomes the very impediment to that which we would hope for in terms of a better world. This is one of the questions that Lauren um, raises for us in the book and that we hope to talk about tonight. But if optimism is not inherently cruel, as she said, one of the questions for us this evening is, what kinds of optimism might we advocate? If feminist optimism might be cruel, 
but it might not be, what kind of feminism might we advocate? What kinds of publicity, of publicness, of feelings, of desires? So to get us started, we have some very intelligent, and I will say amiable companions, and I will also admit that I feel strongly about each and every one of them, and in a positive direction. <laughs> I actually do. I feel optimistic about all of them, too. That's a very good point. Um, and they're each going to talk for a very brief period of time, about uh, seven minutes, and then Lauren is going to wrap up that part of the conversation, and then we're going to open it up to a broader conversation. So we're going to speak in the order in which they are seated, which is to say Lauren obviously will go last, but then um, to her left, Jose Munoz is the chair of the Department of Performance Studies at New York University, and his, he is the author of Disidentification, Queers of Color, and the Performance of Politics, and also Cruising Utopia, you can see why he would be here, the then and there of queer futurity. Following Tavia will be Anne Pellegrini, who is Associate Professor of Performance Studies and Religious Studies at New York University, where she also directs NYU's Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality. She is the author of Performance Anxieties, Staging Psychoanalysis, Staging Race, co-author with Janet R. Jacobson of Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation and the Limits of Religious Tolerance. I also feel strongly about that book. <laughs> co-editor with Daniel Boyern and Daniel Itzkevitz of Queer Theory and the Jewish Question and co-editor with Jacobson of Secularisms. It becomes shorter once you've known each other longer. <laughs> and then finally, to wrap things up, Tavia Nyango is Associate Professor of Performance Studies at New York University, where he teaches African-American and black diasporic performance, popular and subcultural musics, performance historiography, and research methods and queer studies. His book, The Amalgamation Waltz, Race, Performance, and the Ruses of Memory, won the 2010 Errol Hill Award of the American Society for Theater Research. So without further ado, Jose Munoz. So uh, this, um, these remarks, um, I think, are um, a distillation of a conversation Lauren and I have been having for a while about um, uh, my investment and, um, and uh, um, interest in talking about a certain kind of utopianism and um, uh, her investment in delineating and helping us imagine um, a particular mode of optimism. So over the last couple of years, I've been thinking about my framing of a particular queer utopianism and Lauren Berlant's set of theoretical propositions and descriptive captures of what she calls cruel optimism. On one immediate level, Lauren's cruel optimism is about maintaining traction in our presentness, while my turn to futurity is an attempt to think of something else that isn't the here and now. I don't want to underplay the real differences between our positions, because of my friendship and camaraderie with Lauren, I do feel a strong impulse to say something like, oh, we're really writing about the same thing, which is basically outlining the affective work we do to endure and sustain ourselves during cruel times when we feel the erosion of one sustaining life genres. In the same vein, I would go on to say, both Lauren and I are interested in what's negotiated by different collectives and individuals who are able to perform or enact a certain performance of queer temporality that unmores us from those things that are suffocating and damaging in life, the logics and forces that one experiences as compelled durational performances. Um, I, think we, I think we certainly hear each other in productive ways. In Lauren's Cruel Optimism, I encounter a compelling account of the strange, exuberant attachments um, that keep ticking in us despite the licking or abuse that life at this historical juncture offers. Um, I see a vivid account of the ways we hold on in the face of a precariousness that wears life out to the, to the extent that the texture of everything becomes almost too slippery to hold or too threadbare to grasp. Lauren has a great capacity to tend to the brutality that we endure in the present. When reading the work, I can picture her hunkering down in the foxhole of the here and now, while I'm quick to look for an exit sign in the, most, in the form of a mostly rhetorical futurity. Cruel optimism is a tale of being with an object in the present and allowing oneself to be changed by that object, but understanding that such a transformation is not necessarily letting oneself be mastered by it. Enduring is not a minimalist practice. 
In some ways, her account of things as saturated with hope is as, in some ways, her account of things is as saturated with hope as a temporal escapology that I linger on in my own writing. But the animating force of micro-utopia is a longing for what Bloch would call a not-yet-conscious or the not-yet-here. Such brazing longing can definitely feel like an avoidance of the present. Um, I find myself insisting uh, again and again that I'm not against the present and the politics that constitute it, but maybe I protest too much. Uh, the good Marxist in me looks at Lauren's idea of cruel optimism as an opportunity for self-examination. I'm interested in tracking a certain kind of potentiality during moments of what Lauren might call suspension or the impasse of living in the overwhelming present moment. To this end, I think the practice of queer utopianism can be tempered by the phenomenon that Lauren unfolds as cruel optimism. The mode of optimism articulated in Lauren's work isn't just normative optimism with its vague futurities. What Lauren describes as the vague futurities of normative affect is what I, after Bloch, would describe as the category of an abstract utopian thinking. Abstract utopian thinking falters precisely because of its overarching vagueness, its refusal to imagine structural transformation. A more concrete utopianism would participate in a calculus that thinks the here and now, along with the then and there. And indeed, this mode of contemplation might enable us to live with and beyond the cruelty of the object. And this is just kind of dialectical. Um, let me try to add a visual level to this somewhat abstracted exercise in comparing and contrasting cruel optimism with uh, uh, a concrete queer utopianism. Mark Morrisro emerged from the Boston punk bohemia of the 1980s. He's often discussed as being part of the Boston school uh, that also included Nan Golden, David Armstrong, and Jack Pearson. This crew of young artists worked together, posed for each other, and developed styles that elevated the snapshot and the Polaroid to new heights, especially in relation to the hard work of rendering an image of the often romanticized low life that these young artists lived. Morris Rowe is perhaps most famous for his sandwich prints. Morris's prints sandwiched together color and black and white negatives of the same image, producing a visual, a visual texture that is often weird and dense. His process began with him taking a color photo, rephotographing that image in black and white, and sandwiching or superimposing them to produce prints. This layering of negative displays the way in which two images are never the same. Photography's fragile technical claims, technological claims to a more real representation of the world are shot in Morris Rowe's work. The layering of images leads to a hazy and saturated color field, an exaggeration of shadowing, Small and often domestic images of the intimate or quotidian achieve an amplified melodrama. In one image, an ant is pierced uh, by, um, by, a, by a pin. Um, then there's an image of a boy next door that is conveyed in a ghostly realm between color and non-color. The dramatic shading collides with a ribbon of light that seems to trail him. Um, another image... Uh, shows the artist wearing a pale white wig flanked by a shadowy friend and a bright blue wig that awaits him from atop a bureau. His drag isn't from the 80s, but from another historical moment that beckons and hints at a story of gay men in the 80s turning to the quotidian costuming of the 50s and 60s. This suggests the ways in which objects from the past, ones that may be toxic, are snatched from that once um, from that once um, and best and at best melancholic present and um, uh, transported to a haunted past. A lover's outstretched arm seems to hang lethargically in the air as it emerges, as emerges, as it emerges from a billowy, I don't know why emerges became such a difficult word, uh, uh, emerges from a billowy pink bed, and we see the domestic drama of a black cat sitting mesmerized as it gazes at a vulnerable parakeet perched on the man's hand. Um, in another famous self-portrait, Morso is in the persona of one of his drag characters, Sweet Raspberry. In relatively sharp focus, uh, he looks back at the camera, his head slanted, a jacket falling over his shoulder, face and pearls receding into a larger lagoon of shadows that include his dark wig that enfolds it. In this image, we find a typically saturated, blurry background offering a sense 
of what it means to have one's queerness drawn out of the normative time, out of normative time and place. There is a longing in Morris's images that hails me. I must confess, I was recently asked to write about these images, and I started to worry about the predictability of the kinds of sense I'm asked to make of objects. Um, but, uh, but following this auto-examination mode, um, I'm not interested in, recant- in recanting my way of doing things, far from it, but I am suggesting that we can perhaps look at Morris's photographs as documents of a mimetic ren- rendering of cruel optimism in the face of a harsh and painful life which is to say the sweet and sad object world of Morisot's photography can be read simultaneously as lush images of people, animals, and objects surviving our compromised ordinariness, as Lauren would put it. Morisot's photographs visualize an effective world that is an effective shift from more realist photographic aesthetic. Lauren and I have, um, in, are invested, I think, in both our ways, in Adorno's idea of an aesthetic that we can suggest as the otherwise. The otherwise of sex, gender, and class reality we encounter in Morris Rose work is not um, change onto itself. It's not an automatic transformation. Instead, it's potentially a part of a bigger story that I think a few of us are trying to tell. It's not about the speedy arrival at a better good life that the aesthetic offers us, but it's about the effective resources for otherwiseness that exist both in the realm of the aesthetic and the quotidian. Thank you. People never willingly abandon a libidinal position, not even indeed when a substitute is already beckoning to them. The observation here is Freud's from Mourning and Melancholia, but the turn to politicize it, to underscore the social and political coordinates and costs of the stickiness of objects of attachment is utterly and distinctively Lauren Berlant's. In Cruel Optimism, Lauren raises pressing questions about the role of fantasies and foreclosures in the making and remaking of the social, the making and remaking of us. She does so by exploring our commitments to modes of attachment, even when our persistent object choices are barriers to flourishing. We are not, as she points out, a nation of Bartlebys who'd prefer not to. Instead, we prefer to keep on keeping on with the habits of attachment we know best, come what may happily ever after, without the happily part. Call it the death drive of desire. (laughs) Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to love you too hard. Happily ever after. Someone to need you too much. Someone to read you too well. Someone to bleed you of all the things you don't want to tell. That's happily ever after, ever, ever, ever after in hell. Feel free to sing along. Is this the best we can hope for? Please keep some of your answers to yourselves. What is the promise of the object? As Lauren underscores, the promise is not the thing itself, but the way that that object holds out to us some sense of our endurance or continuity in the world, a sense of being alive in and with the object. I'm grateful for the chance to think aloud tonight with Lauren Berlant and in such glorious extended company as my co-panelists. Lauren's cruel optimism with her playful shift from him to hum during her reading of an Ashbury poem and her marshalling to the stage of Judy Garland and Dorothy Gale, oh my, in her discussion of Jeff Ryman's novel, was. This marshalling and this playful shift, they invite me to return to the scene of one of my own most enduring objects and forms of attachment, musicals. Now, it may surprise you to hear that some people don't like musicals. I mean, some others, and you know who you are, like musicals but are embarrassed to admit it. An embarrassment that has much to do with what Dan De Niro is calling the affective surplus of musicals. But some of this embarrassment and this dislike, too, are due to the musical's violation of reality. In real life, in ordinary life, people don't break into song to disclose their otherwise inexpressible feelings. This excess, this departure from the ordinary, is precisely what I value in musicals. And frankly, I'd love to live in a world where people commonly broke into song. I threaten to do so in a minute minute basis. But enough about me, let's talk about narcissism. (laughs) 
Mourning and melancholia extends many of the ideas first developed in Freud's 1914 overstuffed essay on narcissism. If mourning and melancholia concerns the vicissitudes of the ego in face of loss, our narcissism addresses how and why the ego attaches to objects outside itself to begin with. To begin with, we must love or fall ill. Actually, the Strachey translation reads, a strong egoism is a protection against falling ill. But in the last resort, we must begin to love in order not to fall ill. Of course, as is the case with Freud and with love, it is a little more complicated than this, for it turns out that falling in love is no protection against falling ill either. Otherwise, psychoanalysis wouldn't be an enduring project. But really, the takeaway here is the careful balancing act between ego libido and object libido, between self-regard and attachment to the world of objects outside the self. It's not an either-or, but a both-and. In fantasy, our desires can range widely and wildly. But in reality, the range of objects we are allowed to love or can allow ourselves to love is severely circumscribed socially and psychically. Paradoxically, part of this circumscription is also a kind of self-love in the form of conscience, and often punishing conscience, to be sure. In a passage in On Narcissism that presages Freud's subsequent discussion of the way the melancholic ego will set up a version of the lost object inside itself as a new measure for the self, Freud describes the evolution of conscience as a kind of conservation, too, of the self-love or primary narcissism that the child must give up in order to become the man. Freud writes, as always, where the libido is concerned, man has here shown himself incapable of giving up a satisfaction he had once enjoyed. And the passage continues, he's not willing to forgo the narcissistic perfection of his childhood. And when, as he grows up, he's disturbed by the admonitions of others and by the awakening of his own critical judgment so that he can no longer retain that perfection, he seeks to recover it in the new form of an ego ideal. What he projects before him as his ideal is the substitute for the lost narcissism of his childhood in which he was his own ideal. There's much more to say here about the role of conscience, what might even be called ethics, in the flourishing and in the foreclosure of fantasy. And I leave to my esteemed friend, about whom I have great feelings, Dr. Janet Jacobson, um, a later discussion on ethics. In closing, I want to turn briefly to a musical fantasy, courtesy of Stephen Sondheim's 1970 play, Company. I've written about company elsewhere, and I can't seem to finish thinking and writing about it. But maybe this inability to come to a definitive end is my fantasy, the fantasy opened for me by this musical's ambivalent wrestling with the shape and the shaping of desire. The play revolves around the unmarried Robert, Bobby Booby, to his friends, and the five married couples that make up his social world and whom he in some way completes. In the world of company, one's impossible, two is dreary, but three is company. Officially billed as a musical comedy, company strains the form. It is effectively plotless, composed of a series of vignettes depicting Robert with his married friends, Robert on dates, and the married couples talking about and worrying over Robert's unmarried state. And also, the entire play may be taking place in Robert's head, a series of reveries in the moments before he blows out the candles on his birthday cake, for his friends have thrown him a surprise birthday party, and they are anxious that he get their wish for him. Robert himself protests to no avail that he did not make a wish, a scandal of imagination, but also a kind of protest against the cramped forms he's being asked to conform his desires to. Earlier, I played you the opening verses of Heavily, Happily Ever After, Sondheim's second attempt to write Bobby's final song. Its cynical depreciation of marriage didn't go down well with the out-of-town critics in Boston. Even director Harold Prince would later describe it as, quote, the bitterest, most unhappy song ever written. <laughs> This bitter song scared the audience, in Prince's words. And again, this is Harold Prince. It scared us, the play's creative team, because it was too complicated. If I heard that song, I wouldn't get married for anything in the world. <laughs> exactly. And that was precisely the problem. And also why I love this song. What kind of happily ever after is that? So Sondheim wrote another final song with a happy ending, a Stephen Sondheimish kind of happy ending, that is, entitled Being Alive. And this is, in fact, the song that ends the play and has ended the play since its April 1970 opening in New York City. Sondheim himself says that the song begins as a complaint and turns into a prayer, hymn to hum indeed. The song records Robert's emotional growth after rejecting marriage and the promise and the premise that there is a particular someone for him, 
he now seems ready to risk being for another. This risk is even posed as the very risk of life. Days, but alone is alone, not alone. Somebody crowned me with love, somebody forced me to care. Survive being alive, being alive, being alive. Critics and audiences have embraced being alive as the better song. And it probably is, but it's a compromised pleasure. The pleasure audiences take in the play's new ending depends in large part on their, on our, unknowing what they, what we have just seen. Bobby's social world has been peopled, crowded even, all along with friends who nudge and nurture. And yet the new ending seems to equate finding that one special someone not just with growing up, but with life itself against the zero sum of the couple form. To be single is to be no thing at all. And again, I said earlier that the entire play may take place in Bobby's head as he's waiting to blow out his candles. And in Lonnie Price's staging of Company, which just took place this weekend um, at the New York Philharmonic, he actually did something really interesting with the ending, though he included the song Being Alive. After the song, um, Bobby doesn't show up for his birthday party. So his friends are waiting in his apartment, and he never materializes. Instead, he goes over to the couch, a love seat, and gloriously occupies it by himself, with a very knowing glance at the empty place on the couch. It is not a glance of emptiness, but of actual self-plenitude. Now, that's one way, Lonnie Price is staging, that's one way to begin to love in order not to fall ill, the self-love of the new ending. It is also a neat way to queer company. But what other fantasies might be unleashed by the prospect of being alive in company? What if we wait with Bobby in the dark and in that moment before he blows out his candles make a collective wish with him for different forms of collectivity? So I play the song's last verse again. And the you of address is pluralized. The us amplified well beyond the number two. An undefined and temporarily dispersed possibility of a multitude of objects. We need these fantasies for they help us survive being alive. This is not an ending and fuck the reality principle. In her essay of the same name, Lauren Berlant describes cruel optimism as an object relation that is similar to melancholia, in that, with cruel optimism, you also refuse to relinquish an object for a better or healthier alternative. In the case of cruel optimism, however, the object in question is not lost. So rather than tether you to the past, Cruel optimism yokes you to the future through a present characterized by the ongoing appearance of an object that, so long as you continue to hoard it, will hum reassuringly, acclimating you to a situation in which each expansion or epiphany contains both the promise of the senses becoming theoreticians of the possible and the premise that this aperture out of an otherwise stuck world is held open by the attached object itself. I now realize that before Lauren Berlant taught me to call it cruel optimism, I had already been calling this phenomenon Apple computers. (laughs) Ever since entering my future junior high school as a perspective, and encountering the rows of Macintosh 2s the school kept boastfully on display in common areas and not, as I was told, other inferior schools did under lock and key in computer labs. I have always associated the smiling Mac icon with, well, happiness. (laughs) Here was a computer with a graphical interface, not a command line like the frightening DOS computer my grandfather gave me when I was 13. A computer that was user-friendly 
that I could compose book reports and poetry on, draw pictures in, and play Tetris with. Long before the internet, well, years at any rate, I was hooked on the iconicity of the apple, such that in a social ethics class in college, when we divided and redivided the room on such questions as Microsoft versus Macintosh, I knew where I stood. <laughs> that being a Mac guy was already part of the division of my sensible became clearer over the darker years of dogged devotion to a technology company that, in the early to mid-1990s, looked poised to be swamped by the behemoth from Redmond. Through it all, I kept the faith, replacing each obsolete object with its successor, moving laterally, as Lauren would say, from desktop to laptop to desktop to iPod to iPhone, and last year to the epiphanic object whose cruelty would at last capture a heretofore unspeculated level of optimism, the iPad. <laughs> In Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud warned that with all the mighty technological advances of his day, man had truly become a prosthetic god. But our prostheses don't always make us feel godlike, even if we are sometimes tempted to deify their in uh, designers, inventors, and entrepreneurs who deliver to them, to us, at the irregular rhythm of release dates and software upgrades. Who wants to be 1.0 in a 4.1 world? <laughs> Not I. But if the iPad doesn't make me feel godlike, brushing its tactile interface does swoosh me closer to another body whose progression through the world is not characterized by the timely upgrade, the faster processor, or the ever-expanding commercial network, but also by the hitches and the stalled relation to corporeality of a body with its necessary debilities. My uh, partner in crime is here today, Steve Wozniak. Stand up. Come on. Well, thank you for coming. We've got some, some really cool stuff to show you this morning. And so I first wanted to start uh, with an uh, update of Apple Retail. Um, you've all seen our our Fifth Avenue store, uh, but we've been opening some amazing stores uh, lately, and I wanted to just fill you in on three of them. Uh, the first one uh, is in Paris. It's our second store in Paris. Our first was in the Louvre. Watching Steve Jobs speak, it strikes me how technology, like sports and politics, is one of the few subjects, objects, that men permit themselves to have public feelings about. The abandon of excitement the vulnerability of anticipation, the generosity of sharing. You don't know how to do that with your iPhone? Here, let me take time out of my busy day and show you how. <laughs> like politics, but especially like sports, technology allows men to express public concern and care about each other's bodies, not just of the, and not just a primarily erotic uh, concern, despite the uh, only partly deserved reputation of geeks for caffeine-fueled, homoerotically-tinged bouts of epic misogyny, such as Aaron Sorkin depicted in The Social Network. I'm thinking more of the concern voiced over the years over Steve Jobs' struggle with pancreatic cancer, which he was diagnosed with in 2004. Ever since then, each of his public appearances timed with Apple product release conventions has occasioned a specific technique of observation of his body in which his future, the future of his company, and implicitly, the future of the cruel optimisms we all attach to the steady stream of objects that that body and mind delivers has been the site of an anxious speculation. 
as we hear him affectionately recognize company co-founder Steve Wozniak as a, quote, partner in crime, unquote. The self-abasing self-reference does a double work of deflecting from biography and swerving directly back into it, back into the criminal conspiratorial scene of invention, which is an excess of the rigors of the market precisely insofar as the inventor, the cruel optimist, holds open an aperture out of an image of the present and the future as linear accumulation of more of the same. In writing about technology, critics often turn to some version of the notion of an imminent frame, the sense in which the critique of technology cannot take place from some imagined standpoint outside technology, but has to occur from somewhere within the network, the circuits, the digital flesh. Lauren's work has taught me to expand and enrich this sense of imminence beyond a spatial location for thought into a scene or episode for feeling, moving laterally. I reflect upon my attachment, literally and figuratively, to a series of prostheses that connect me to globally unequal capitalism, yes, to consumer fetishism, certainly, but also to an unwillingness to let go of the virtuality of technology, not in the sense of virtual reality, but in the sense of the new capacities made available in potentia in each new technology, new occasions that might and do permit the senses to become theoreticians of themselves. Learning to play the piano on the iPad. Indeed, learning to play the iPad as a musical instrument that demands its own virtuosity, even if that virtuosity is necessarily amateur, precarious, opportunistic, and even a little bit cynical. Apple computer technologies are part of the ubiquitous paraphernalia of academia, DJing, art school, etc. So much so that it is a little embarrassing to want to think aloud and about them directly within one of these spaces. Trying to get the technology to work properly can itself be source of abjection enough. It seems, though, that Berlant's critique of the present is poised less to excavate another boring scene of excitement about what technology can do once all the bugs are pinned, and more to unfold the moving laterally within, ordinary, within an ordinary ambiance of excitement, awkwardness, disappointment, and optimism that is everywhere experienced but less frequently worked through, a work that Lauren's work continually invites us to value. So I want to I thank my colleagues for just being so moving and, and so interesting and surprising. And, and uh, uh, All right, so I'm going to say some things, <laughs> and then I'm going to get to some things. I want to open up some things. So that's sort of the, my, sort of like, sort of, that's, that's, that, that didn't sound like a plan, but it actually was a plan. So, um, you know, it was really interesting for me to return to the thought about cruel optimism as a thought about publics. In, in my work... One of the kind of doxic moment in my work is to say that public spheres are affect worlds. That is, we're attached to the world and the worlds that present themselves to us and the worlds we imagine. And we're, we're, you don't, we don't intend those affective attachments, but we discover those affective attachments. You're born with zero attachments, and then in order to flourish, in order to stay alive, you actually have to have them. And so you can't really be against optimism. You can't be against attachment because you, 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 living requires you actually to be attached to something. So then what's, what's interesting is what's the relation between the form of an attachment and the affects that get um, magnetized to that? Attachment and 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 the history and situation of those of that magnetization of affect is the political, and is the social. Okay, so so I'm interested in you know how people how feelings bind us not only to the people we know but the people we don't know, and how the even bound to, even being bound to people we don't know, including and not just people we don't know but but things we don't know and ideas we don't know and smells we don't know. The essay says you could be bound to anything: smells ideas, humans, it doesn't really matter. That form of binding is itself uh, the condition of your flourishing. Therefore, it's not only content, but it's form. And then the question is, how do you, how do you make a better world for the attachment to life that you have, right? So the thing I'm really interested in are the affects of belonging. 
the relation between attachment to the world and the, and, and the feeling of belonging to the world? And what is the relationship between the feeling? Does belonging always feel like belonging, or does it sometimes feel like prison? And does it, does it sometimes feel suffocating, and does it sometimes feel impossible? And does, does belonging feel like foreclosure when it's also the condition of your actual flourishing in the world? Those kinds of questions are really central. And the thing that I want to get to, I'm, I'm going to be writing a the book after the book after next is sort of going to be <laughs> is going to be about the affects of belonging, particularly the affects of the commons. I mean, do we even know what at, what are the affects of of a collective belonging would be, and how how do people even think the commons is now being kind of touted as the way to think about democracy um, without hierarchy or you know the the collection of singularities? But it, you could say it as form, but what what's the what's the affect of it, and how would you know it when you felt it if you felt it? Um, and so, uh, so I'm interested, therefore, when Anne was reading, nobody ever willingly abandons a libidinal position, which is one of my favorite phrases for some reason, because it's true, I mean, but also because it's beautiful. Um, I always make a mistake when I say it, which is nobody ever willingly abandons a political position, because mm-hmm. the political and libidinal are all tied up with each other, because people understand at some level that their attachment to the political is their attachment to being uh, in the commons, to being attached to being in a collective world. And um, what's the relation between being attached to the political and being attached to politics? Politics, the place where you're always disappointed. And the political, the place where you're always excited. And so it's kind of like what Tavi was saying about the good, bad object of technology. On the one hand, it's the thing that becomes, it wears out and it becomes broken. And on the other hand, the idea of it is actually something that lights your brain up. You know? And one of the things you could always think about is how optimism and trauma do the same kind of thing. It lights up a part of your brain that makes you non-sovereign. And so the thing that really interests me is the ways that people desire and don't desire to become non-sovereign. People desire and don't desire to become attached in a way that makes them lose control. And that those forms of losing control are the forms of belonging to the social. Because I want to actually be involved with people I don't know in order to build a world that I can't see yet. That's the political. That's my attachment to the political, right? So, I mean, I'm saying right like you know me, but it really, that is my attachment. It's your attachment to the political, too, is my point, you know. um, That's what the political holds out. It holds out the possibility of a good non-sovereignty. And yet the discourse that we have about what you get when you have democracy is more sovereignty. And yet belonging is all about the possibility of having a world that you could trust with your non-sovereignty, with your dependence on other people, and with the way that you have to be in the world with them to build a life. So it was interesting to me that uh, today's speakers were all about this. And, and by the way, um, uh, I have a blog entry kind of percolating. They take me a really long time uh, called I Prefer To, you know, which is like my answer to Bartleby, you know, the I prefer not to. Like all, the, all the philosophers in the world are really into preferring not to. And I'm like, I'm into preferring, you know. And I think queer theory is into, into preferring. You know, like, like, like would there be a world that would, be, that would deserve our preferring of it? That's what you want in, in, when you try to do politics, is to make a world you could actually desire since you already have the desire for a world. Um, and so it's also very interesting then to think, what do we do for a living? You know, what do critics do? What, what's the point of what... Of, of producing new forms for extending our optimism. Because in, being an intellectual is being optimistic. An idea impacted us, and then we became different, and then we had ideas that we hoped would impact people, and then they would become different. What, what, is, it that we're, what is it that we're doing when we, when we write or when we talk or when we teach a class or when we're trying to actually get everyone in sync for the possibility of a transformation, which is Stanley Cavell's definition of love, is, 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 is the attempt to stay in sync with another. So I'm not saying I love you, but, but I, I'm trying to stay in sync with you. But, that, that's, you know, but you know, people, people get excited about that when it's just two people, but I'm excited about it when it's the possibility of a world being in sync, and then the possibility that the form of being in sync could open up a space where we could say it and take it back, where we could be genuinely experimental in our trying to imagine what a new good life is. So what everybody was saying today, which is really true about uh, cruel optimism, is that one of the things it's about is about the relationship between survival and flourishing. And that incredibly moving line in the song from Company that Anne cited, to help us survive being alone. Is that it? To help us survive being alive. To help us survive being alive. And, um, and, and one of the things I always say in my work, the uh, female complaint says it really explicitly in the showboat chapter, in its chapter on musicals, is that what happens all the time in the political is that the difference between zero and one, between not surviving and surviving, starts to foreclose all of our imagination for living because survival is not a given for almost anybody. And so, but it's really important to hold the space open beyond survival, the space of flourishing. 
Um, and that's what Jose is also trying to think about. It's like, the, it's like we, you know, in fact, one of the things we do when we're trying to create a critical space is a space where it would be possible to survive and better, and where survival would be the minima. And then, we, and then the, the debate over what politics should do is the debate over the minima. What should the minima be that would constitute life so that we could imagine what flourishing would be? And that flourishing is what the good life is. And one, one of the things we're... So, so uh, cruel optimism is, is, is coming out at a moment where there is no escapology possible, you know, in a certain sense, because what there is is the aspiration for a present that we could live in. You know, it's not... We can't presume the present and hope for a future. We, act, we can't even presume the present. So we're hoping for a present that we could, that we could live in and we could flourish in. And, uh, and what's hard is that so many of the infrastructures of continuity that have generated the good life since the 1940s in the United States and in social democracies all over the world have collapsed um, so that it's, 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 it's incredibly hard to imagine. And we no longer have an anchor for what we project out as the good life. So this is an opportunity for us as critics and thinkers and artists is to think, well, what do we want the good life to be collectively? Is it possible? What are, what, what is, it, is it just not not surviving? You know, is it just the possibility of survival that would be the good life? Or can we imagine something that we would be willing to have, that we would be willing to fight for? And importantly, that we would be willing to lose for. Because the reorganization of life, as cruel optimism says, the reorganization of life requires you to lose your object and to be in the space beyond your object where you can actually encounter other humans and build a world with them. Um, and it means not knowing, not, no longer having the archaic fantasy of the good life that you uh, grew up with or that uh, organized the world for you, but actually kind of think, well, that good life didn't really work well, too well for too many people, and it turned out that like only six people could get it. And everybody else, what they, were, what they were floating on was the fantasy. It was a phantasmatic cushion. And now the phantasmatic cushion has lost its air, or choose your metaphor. Um, um, and, so, and nonetheless, we need the possibility of an imaginary for how, what to build toward that we have to be willing to lose for, we have to be willing to disagree with each other, and we have to be willing to experiment and be wrong. And there has to be a space where we can actually be open to the possibility of our non-sovereignty in relation even to our fantasies. So I think, so that, so, you know, what all of these papers were about is that. It's about it's the question of what it means to be undone by your fantasy. And then also those moments at which you have to interrupt the fantasy that sustained you in order for you to be able to imagine a better justice. So Janice, uh, Janice started out with justice, and I, I'm always um, uh, moved by Agamben saying in, in his work on witnessing where he says, the performance of justice is really there to provide you the satisfaction that a decision happened. It's not actually a delivery of justice. It's not actually a delivery of the pleasure of the possibility of flourishing together. It's, it's that at least something happened. It's like the minimal event of something happening. So... It's not even justice that we can imagine right now because we don't even know what the terms of collective life can be that the world can sustain and that we would fight for the world to sustain. So what's really interesting is that all of the papers, and in some way we're trying to think about what it means to have a kind of you know, affective or aesthetic interruption so that you could walk around and figure out what, need, what could be preserved and taken out of that place to be the building ground, the affective building ground for the new life and the, the new good life that we could then actually fight for. So I think so. So one of the things we could think about is the uh, is the the how to effectively deal with what's unbearable, which is the loss of our object world, and not to just be overwhelmed by the loss of that object world, but to see that loss as the opportunity for building new, better objects for optimism. And what the aesthetic was in all of these papers, that the aesthetic technological was in all of these papers, was the kind of interruption that allowed people to feel a kind of absorption in the possibility that the, that the artwork made to feel otherwise and to represent otherwise. And I think the, its relation to criticism and political theory is and to create forms for magnetizing new optimistic affects that we could trust. So that's my response to you. <laughs>